The annals of military history are strewn with the stories of failure by soldiers and armies who did not know why they were fighting or somewhere along the line had lost belief and confidence in the cause in which they were engaged. Pity that nation whose fortunes rest on soldiers who do not see the larger purpose of the fight in which they're involved. Such soldiers are highly susceptible to depression, to timidity in the face of danger, to self-serving lack of judgment, to insubordination. They're primed for failure and dishonor on the field of battle. But when an army fights for a purpose that is noble and larger than all the soldiers put together, zeal for the one grand mission overwhelms the fear of death and selfish ambition. And such an army can prove unstoppable against all odds. It is this sort of frame of mind that I believe that should characterize our lives as the followers of Jesus Christ. Our battle, of course, is so very different than a physical military battle. But it is this mindset, this concept of the grander mission in which we are involved that needs to move us. Is it true? How easily we become discouraged. How easily we become lazy and self-indulgent and petty in our life orientation, overwhelmed with our own purposes in life. But may the Spirit of God move us to elevate our focus and realize that the overwhelming question in life is not what am I doing and how are things going for me, but ultimately what is God doing and what part I have in that grand mission. The first verses of the book of Acts unmistakably direct us to orient our lives to what Jesus is doing in this world and to embrace our mission to serve as soldiers of Christ who are called to advance His redemptive purposes. I invite you to the first chapter. We'll be going back as well to the first chapter of Luke if you'd like to find that. But remembering that Luke, the author of Acts, begins his historical treatise of the early church by linking it to the earlier gospel in which he details the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having done that, Luke proceeds to stress two pivotal and final aspects of Jesus' ministry here in the book of Acts. In this first chapter today, by God's grace, we're going to look at, first of all, the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus to his disciples. And then to look secondly at the ascension of Jesus Christ. These last two features of his earthly work. Now they are mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. And Acts will overlap with that and link the two books together. But it is in the context of these concluding aspects of Jesus' ministry on earth that we discover the grand mission of God in this world and our involvement in that mission. So under this theme of the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus to his disciples, we read in Acts chapter 1, the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
We really learn nothing new here as we go back to the book of Luke in the first chapter. Luke tells us that he has taken on the task of compiling a narrative of the life of Christ, gathering from the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that have been delivered to the believers. And then in verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, concerning the life of Christ, as we go to the end of the Gospel of Luke 24, in verse 44, we have a post-resurrection account, a narrative of Jesus talking to two disciples, then coming and appearing to all of the disciples in Jerusalem. And in Luke 24, 44, he says to them, Luke 24, 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Everything Jesus is doing according to prophecy. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So he's teaching them how the Old Testament text pointed to everything that has happened, including his crucifixion and resurrection. Verse 46, And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. They're witnesses. There is a promise that is going to be fulfilled, but for you, I want you to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he departed from them and was carried up into heaven, the ascension. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now notice that word then in verse 50. He appears to them immediately following his resurrection and then he ascends into heaven. You might think that that all happened on one day in just reading the Gospel of Luke. But now as we come back to Acts and zero in here, we realize that there is more that took place after Jesus' resurrection. In the book of Luke, the account is, as I said, telescoped, with the telescope being pushed together. And now in the book of Acts, as Luke develops it there, he's going to pull the telescope apart and fill in some of the details for us. So as we read these first few verses, there's really nothing new here. He's just linking it back to the gospel. But what we find here now in Acts 1, as Luke reminds us of the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus to his disciples, and as he fills in some details, particularly about the ascension and the mission that's here, we find Jesus laboring in these post-resurrection days with his disciples. The first thing that we read and discern here in these first few verses is Jesus provides his disciples with irrefutable proof that he is alive. This is his mission, to make it clear to them in this period of time that he is genuinely alive. He has risen from the dead. None of them doubted that he had died. It was very clear. But now he proclaims to them that he is alive. And as Luke says, we find then what Jesus began to do and teach, covered in the Gospel of Luke, will be carried out in this book in Acts because Jesus is still alive and still teaching through his disciples. 
He is alive in glory with the Father, and he is proclaiming his truth through the na- to the nations through the Spirit of God. Luke's gospel covers the life of Jesus up until, as verse 2 says, the day when he was taken up. We saw that at the end of Luke. And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Who are these apostles? These are, having lost Judas, the 11 men Jesus chose, commissioned, and sent out as his authoritative representatives. Jesus issued this mission through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will continue with the disciples as they go to the farthest reaches of the earth. Now notice verse 3. To them he presented himself alive. That is, to these apostles, Jesus presents himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the end of Luke's gospel might lead one to believe, as I said, that Jesus ascended on that day. But here we learn that he actually appeared apparently intermittently to his disciples over a period of 40 days. Thinking of the chronology here, he dies at Passover. Pentecost, the pent, comes 50 days after Passover. During that 50-day period, for 40 days, Jesus is appearing to various groups of people. The Gospels present 10 post-resurrection appearances to varying groups of people at various places over these 40 days. And in these appearances, the disciples saw Jesus. Not only did they see him, but they touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus, watching him eat and digest food. He taught them about the kingdom of God. They communed with one another. These were not phantom appearances. And these appearances were utterly essential. They would now become witnesses that Jesus is alive. Through many proofs, You notice that phrase there, the word proofs, it misses us a bit, but it was a strong technical Greek term used to describe irrefutable, tangible evidence, whether in a court of law or a medical diagnosis. The apostles simply had to witness this reality that Jesus was alive, and they did, and it was irrefutable. This truth indeed transformed them, didn't it? We remember them as fearful, depressed men. Soldiers of Christ who had completely lost all sense of purpose and hope. But seeing Jesus Christ alive again, having conquered death, they went out into the world with courage and with zeal. They were men on fire for God and alive. And there's no explanation to this change other than this. He was alive. So Jesus provides his disciples with irrefutable proof that he is alive. The second thing during this post-resurrection ministry is Jesus instructs his disciples to wait in anticipation for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We find this in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He's staying with them or eating with them, depending on how the word is taken, and the two are obviously fairly interchangeable. But Jesus, as we might put it, hung out with them over these 40 days, sharing table fellowship in loving fraternity with them. An example of that is the Gospel of Luke, the last chapter. 
as he walks with these disciples along the path, and as he sits down with them to eat. Remember this. This is the kind of the picture of these post-resurrection appearances. But he tells them in this context to wait for the baptism of the Spirit of God. And that's the key point here in verse 5. John baptized you with water. John put people down into the water to demonstrate their repentance. In a short time, in like manner, the Father is going to honor His promise to baptize His people with the Holy Spirit. God's saving plan is nearing a crucial turning point. Jesus teaches His disciples. John indeed prophesied this day. John the Baptist said in Luke 3 and verse 16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's really not a whole lot of doubt about who John is talking about here. If we would think in a Trinitarian way, he's not talking about God the Father. You don't untie his sandal straps. He's not talking about the Spirit of God. You don't untie his sandal straps. There is one who is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John said this as his ministry took off to the nation of Israel. So what are the disciples to do? Jesus teaching them here and saying, the Spirit is going to come. You will be baptized in the Spirit. What I want you to do is to wait. As we put this together, 50 days between Passover and Pentecost, 40 days of post-resurrection appearances, Knowing that he does appear to some on the day that he rises from the dead, we assume then it's these ten days of silence. A dramatic pause and perhaps allowing the disciples to get some things in order. Who knows what Jesus is doing in that period of time? We can only imagine and dare to tread on that ground. But in that period of ten days, they wait. Now, I think at this point, having seen the risen Christ, the disciples are probably so pumped, he could have sent them out into the world right then, and they would have set out to walk to the ends of the earth. He's alive. They're filled with joy and zeal and excitement. But isn't it interesting, if you ever want to tap the zeal of the early church, it's right now. Right at the end of this period of these 40 days of post-resurrection experiences, and Jesus says what? Wait. Don't go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem. He knows that they can accomplish nothing in their own strength. They must wait for the spirit baptism. Like scuba divers waiting on the deck of a boat for their tanks to be filled, they might be really excited to jump in. But they're not going to get very far. Wait until the spirit baptism comes. So he provides irrefutable evidence that he is alive. He counsels and teaches them to wait until the baptism of the Spirit. Thirdly, during this post-resurrection period, Jesus commissions His disciples to witness the gospel to all peoples in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is where they will go after the baptism of the Spirit. Verse 6, when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Let's leave that on the shelf for a moment. He says to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by His authority, but but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea 
and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Twin Cities, USA. To the ends of the earth, you will be my witnesses. Verse 8 is really at the heart and the essence of this book. Chapters 1 through 7 dealing with the mission in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 and following dealing with the work in Judea, Samaria, and beyond as we move to chapter 13 through 28 and the mission to the Gentiles reaching Antioch and then to Rome. You will be my witnesses throughout the world. But let's go back to that verse 6 and the question that the disciples asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Let's just chase that trail for a little bit here. What do you think of their question? Many commentators, it might even be the preponderance of commentators, would say that this was an ignorant question and indeed a wicked one. These men are showing the evidence of their failure to understand Jesus Christ by asking this question. Some would say this was the lowest moment of Jesus' ministry to them. I wouldn't take that view, but some, such as John Calvin, have famously commented that there are as many errors in this question as there are words. John Stott, a prominent evangelical teacher, accuses the apostles of, quote, dreaming of political dominion, of narrow nationalistic aspirations. But others would go down a different path with this question and say, God promised King David that one of his offspring would rule over Israel from Zion in an eternal kingdom, and that the disciples' question here is thus reasonable. They are expecting God to do what he promised he would do for Israel. Now, those who believe the disciples' question is off base would accuse others who think it is substantially on track of holding to the very same error that the disciples are holding here. No one would claim the apostles understand everything there is to know about the kingdom of God at this point. There's much development. But I ask, does Jesus' answer strike you as a rebuke? Does verse 7 sound like a rebuke to you? It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will be my witnesses. Knowing that the promised Spirit was coming... I mean, what, what does that jog up for these disciples? The Spirit is coming. The baptism of the Spirit is coming. This has been prophesied in the Old Testament. We know that the Spirit is coming. We know Jesus is God's Messiah. There's no question about that. Jesus, in fact, taught us that he inaugurated the new covenant in Luke 22 and verse 20. The disciples are putting this all together. They can hardly contain themselves with excitement. I don't picture here some very, very evil-thinking individuals who are so caught in the past that they can't see what Jesus is doing. What I see here is something more like little children on Christmas morning watching mom and dad get out a cup of coffee very slowly, sit down at the table, and try to convince themselves that they are indeed in the land of the living. Everybody knows what's coming, but the children, with excitement and impatience, say what? Can we open the presents now? Or something like that, right? I think that's where we're at here. The Spirit's coming. The Messiah is here. The new covenant with His blood. All of, Isn't it time now to restore your kingdom to Israel? Everything seems to be lined up for it. They're excited. And what does Jesus say as He responds? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. 
Now, I cannot read that, and I know I would land with a lot more people in some respects, but I just can't read that as a rebuke. It just doesn't read that way. That the disciples should have figured out by now that the future kingdom God promised to Israel in the Old Testament has been canceled. Can't you see that? That they are to understand that national Israel is no longer the Israel of God. And it doesn't square that thinking with other texts of Scripture, such as Romans 11, verses 1 and 2, which says, Has God rejected His people? By no means. Now, Paul's writing long after this took place, and after there was time to figure out what the kingdom of God was and how we were to understand it on this side of the cross. He says, By no means, for I myself am an Israelite. Well, what Paul means there, of course, is that he's a new kind of Israelite, the people of God, trusting Christ as Savior, and all of that idea of national identity is over. But what does he say? I'm an Israelite. If you miss the point here, he says, I am a descendant of Abraham. And if we would say, well, you're a descendant of Abraham by faith, as we are children of faith and children of Abraham, he says further, I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. It seems to me Paul's tripping over himself to say God has not rejected national Israel. And as we read Romans 9 through 11, I don't know how we can come to any other conclusion apart from starting with our decision up front. Romans 9 through 11 make clear that God has a future for Israel, and as 11.29 says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It is by His grace that He chose Israel, and it is by His grace that He will fulfill His Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel. So Jesus' response here is one of timing. Not saying to the disciples, you are completely off base, my work with national Israel is over. There is a new kind of Israel. That's not what he says. It's a matter of timing. Let's say that you lived in the Sahara Desert, and a little child asks you, when are we going to have a blizzard? Would you say to that child, well, we really don't know when that time will come. If you're living in the Sahara Desert, what you should say, in all honesty, is that time is never going to come. There won't be a blizzard here. Let me explain to you what a blizzard is and why we can't have one here in the Sahara. But if a little child asks you here in Minnesota, when will we have a blizzard, you could very honestly say, I don't know when that will happen, or I don't know when that will happen. Just to use that as an illustration, I, this is how I hear Jesus' comment. Jesus does not say, that's not going to happen. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed. I agree with Witherington who says this verse suggests that God will one day fulfill His promises to Israel. In fact, that God has already set that time and determined the integral before it by His own authority. But that human speculation about the timing of such an event is unfruitful since only God knows the timing. He is working to win the world to Himself. Remember Elijah who ascended into heaven, gave a double portion of his spirit to Elisha? That doesn't mean two times the spirit, but it means that he uniquely passed on his spirit to Elisha. So we have something of a fulfillment of that here, perhaps. 
of Jesus ascending into heaven and giving his spirit ultimately in Acts 2 to his people in a unique way. A double portion, if you will. Well, what would you be doing right about now? Jesus ascends into a cloud. We don't have a perfect picture of it, but clearly this is something quite amazing, and they're doing exactly what you and I would be doing, verse 10. While they were gazing into heaven, they're fixated on the clouds. As he went, and behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are angelic messengers. They stand in white robes, which could be translated brilliant, dazzling, or transcendent robes. They know way more than these disciples know. They appear out of nowhere. They're wearing these robes, just like those that proclaim the resurrection of Christ, those angels. And so clearly they're angels. And what do they say, verse 11? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? We could stop here and say, it's really not a hard question to answer, is it? I mean, there's a clear reason why they're looking into heaven. But what they're trying to do is to get the disciples to say, that's not where your eyes need to stay. You're gazing here fixated as if you're never going to look anywhere else. Your focus now needs to not be in the heavens, in one sense of the term, but your focus now needs to be on the earth. And what these angels do is they really establish two reference points for salvation history. The first is Jesus' ascension here from the Mount of Olives into heaven in a cloud before witnesses. What's the second one? It's everything that's here, but now in reverse. He will return to the Mount of Olives from heaven in a cloud before the watching world, Revelation 1-7. So between these two points, the disciples of Christ are to bear witness to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He is ascended to the Father's right hand. But while He is there ascended, having left the Mount of Olives, you are to remain here as my witnesses, carrying the message of Christ crucified and risen throughout the world until Jesus comes back right here at the Mount of Olives. This is God's grand purpose. To bring people of every tongue and tribe and nation to saving faith in Him. This is His grand purpose for us. That we would carry out as the followers of Jesus, this message to every nation. Commentator Daryl Bach says this well. Consider carefully his words. What the early church said and did was rooted in and connected to activity in which the risen Jesus was involved. So Mount of Olives there, Mount of Olives future, Jesus reigning, Everything that is happening in his name is happening through his activity mediated by the Spirit of God. Without Jesus, Bach continues, and his work, one cannot make sense of the church's existence and activity. We have no life apart from the reigning Christ and what he's doing in this world. So let's make that, what he has said, a little more personal. Without Jesus and his work, one cannot make any sense of life. When we get disconnected from what God is doing, we become quickly discouraged. We become lazy, self-indulgent. We come, become petty in our own things, in our life orientation, overwhelmed with our own purposes and agenda. 
But for those who plug into what God is doing by His saving power and rejoice in the victory of the reigning Christ, there's a grand mission every day of our lives. Every day that I get up, there's a grand purpose of God that He is fulfilling, and He's getting it done. There are so many things that seem to be set against us. The battle seems so difficult, but we can remember that Christ has conquered death. He has crushed Satan's head. He reigns today, and He in His purposes is bringing people to saving faith in all of the nations of this earth to the furthest reaches. We are part of a grand project and mission. It fills us with hope. Think of what we learn here. Think of what we can tag into. Think of the stakes that we can drive into the soil of faith here. Jesus is alive. Jesus is reigning at God's right hand. Jesus has defeated death and has provided salvation for those who trust Him. Jesus is saving souls through the witness of His followers, baptizing the Spirit and proclaiming this truth. And Jesus will come again. In fact, there's an X on planet Earth right where He's going to land in God's mind. And He'll land there. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. He will come again. This is the grand purpose. And we need to link our lives into this greater purpose. Or we have no purpose. We lose all sense and meaning of life. We forget that we are God's people. And we live like the world around, like rats in a maze. Tag in to this greater mission. And I ask you personally, have you? Have you responded to the salvation that is in Jesus Christ? Have you come to know this reigning Christ as your personal Savior from sin? Can you give testimony to that? Could you witness for Jesus Christ what He has done in your life? As we sang these songs today, from start to finish in this service, I just pictured myself standing before God and proclaiming these words as my testimony to Him and joining at those right places in those songs with all of us as God's people and proclaiming, this is what I believe. This is what I trust. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And to bring my personal life into sync with that so that I wouldn't stand before God and it would be nothing but hypocrisy. Does that song ring in your soul? Do you know that Christ has conquered death and sin for you? And have you trusted Him as your Savior? Come to Him today if you've not. Come to Him, for He is the reigning Christ. He is the God of comfort and grace. And He will give to you forgiveness of sins and a place with Him in heaven as you trust that message. But for those of us who have, are you a faithful soldier in the grand mission of saving souls? I fear there may be some among us here who get discouraged with that thought. Say, life is hard, there's so much to do, and I have so few gifts, and what can I do to advance the salvation of Christ and to witness His saving grace to the lost? What can I do? Well, one thing we need to do is to tap into this larger plan, and that's the purpose of landing on that so hard today. This Mount of Olives to Mount of Olives task of God, this grand plan and purpose. And by tapping into it to support others, we can just start there. In fact, we probably all do start there. 
to be supportive of the mission of taking Christ to the nations. Linking that then, we should be people of prayer. That's one way that I participate in this work. We should be praying for the lost. Do you systematically and regularly bring people's names before the Lord? It's a rebuke to me. I think of it. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to get disconnected from that. Do we bring the names of lost people before the Lord and plead that He would save them? Do we pray for laborers to be sent from our church, from our nation, from the nations of the earth to places where the gospel of Christ has not been heard? Are you praying about that? There's aids to do that, and talk to me. I'll be happy to point you to some of those aids. But do you have this regularly before you that we need to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest? Are we praying that way? If your prayers were recorded... Could people take a highlighter and say right here, this person is interested in the spread of the gospel. They're interested in what God's interested in. Or would someone take a highlighter, put the cap back on, and say this person's just interested in themselves. Every prayer is about fixing me and my life and making the circumstances around do what I want them to do. Do you pray about the mission that is being carried to the ends of the earth? Do we pray for our missionaries, for those that are on the cutting edge at certain places in proclaiming Christ crucified and risen? Are we praying for the evangelistic events of our church, those communal events, and the ongoing witness of one another? Are we praying for one another as we share the gospel of Christ? Are you in prayer tapping into this greater and grand mission? Certainly, we need to add to this the sending aspect. We as a church, as we send out individuals into the harvest uniquely, should support that and pray for that and be behind it and give, pouring out our gifts to see that these kinds of things take place. And then obviously there is the call for us to witness. Now, some churches say there's only one way to witness for Christ. We've got one program, one way, everybody needs to fit in it. The good people fit in, the bad people don't, and that's the end of it. Well, a lot of good things happen that way, and sometimes such churches have more activity taking place, and God can use a lot of means. But I don't think that that is either realistic or really biblical, that everybody is going to evangelize precisely the same way. We have the same message. We carry Christ crucified and risen, coming again to the lost, but... Not everyone is going to be wired the same way or have the same opportunities in this world, but what opportunities do you have and how can you press them? We have encouraged, and many of you have been pushed out of your box, uh, comfort zone to do this, to lead Bible studies with an unbeliever. Some of you have far more capacity than you think to do that. With a guide and with a tool, can you find someone who doesn't know Christ, sit down with them and open a Bible and share with them the message of salvation? You can, many of you. Are we striving to do it? Are we striving to find that person, make that connection, ask someone who doesn't know Christ, would you be willing to sit down and to meet with me as we study the Bible and what its message is? We have a Friends Sunday coming in, what is I believe, three weeks, October the 5th. In three weeks, we are going to set our service up here in both services such that it will welcome unbelievers into our assembly. Everything is geared for that, including 
at the uh, break between the services, a time of refreshment and food, with the purpose of drawing people here. We don't believe that's the primary purpose of the preaching and worship service of the church, to evangelize, though that's always part of it. But it's not the primary purpose, but on this day, October the 5th, we will emphasize that. Will you bring someone? Is there someone who you say, I never in a hundred years am I going to be the one? In fact, I don't know that God wants me to be the one to sit down and hold a Bible study with someone. But bring them to church, I can do that. They owe me one. Or something along those lines. I, I can ask that question. Will we bring someone on October the 5th to hear the gospel of Christ? That's plugging into the grander mission. Say somebody needs to hear the gospel, and this is one way that I can help them to do it. Certainly, we must come down to the matter of verbal witness. Now, there's some who are more gifted at walking up to a stranger in a mall or at their doorstep and presenting a message of Christ. There's others that's extremely intimidating and unnatural to you. I'm not saying that any one of us should set it off and say that we should never do it, but we need to press ourselves to do it. But there's some of you who really have that ability uniquely and have that interest uniquely. And every one of us, as we are talking to people, need to learn in our conversations to use our conversations to get to the point of life, which isn't have a good day. It's Jesus died and rose again. How often does that theme leave our lips as we talk to unbelievers? We need to proclaim this truth. Literature is certainly helpful. Not helpful in all situations, not useful in all situations, but ideal in others. As we hand literature to someone that we're not going to have a long conversation with, most likely, or to introduce a conversation that we trust will turn into a lengthier one. I throw out these basic ideas just to stimulate your attention, your thoughts, and the application. But what are we doing to tag in to this greater purpose? May God reform Eden Baptist Church in each of our lives and use us in his great harvest. These apostles were never going to go to the ends of the earth with their own two feet. But through them, we are continuing to carry it to the Twin Cities right here in this far-off place where it does snow and there might be a blizzard soon. We take the message here. May God reform us and use us in the harvest that when we meet him, we will hear, wherever we die, wherever we leave this place between Mount Olivet and Mount Olivet, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have sought to bring people to saving faith through your witness and through your efforts in the gospel of Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, how small we feel, how weak and intimidated, and yet I pray, God, that for some in this assembly, there would be a growing joy and confidence. And may that confidence grow as you give us life and opportunity to read and learn further about the Spirit's work. We trust not in our own strength. We trust in the Spirit's calling and grace and power to use us as fallen people to proclaim this message. We pray that you, by the Spirit, would draw to yourself anyone who is separated from Christ. May they yield to that calling today. And Father, for those of us who know you, may we realize that we are witnesses of the risen Christ. 
And may we strive to participate in the grand mission, setting aside the trials, the difficulties, and disappointments of our own individual lives. May we see, God, that we are part of a triumphant army who is winning the world to Jesus. May we join the cause. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.